Afternoon, everyone. Dr. Stillman here. And today we are going to be talking about a very hot topic. It's always hot. Why is it always hot? Because it's a really important topic. And there's been a lot, a lot of information, literature, and even noise and confusion put out about this topic, which is calcium. So calcium is one of your four macro minerals, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. That means that you get lots of it every day, or you should get lots of it every day. But unlike the other macro minerals and trace elements, calcium can really be a double-edged sword. So you're all familiar, I'm sure, with things like osteoporosis and sarcopenia. And of course, you're you know familiar with the process of aging. And the process of aging in many cases results, or I should say, um, goes along with the loss of calcium from the body. Sarcopenia, osteoporosis, sarcopenia being the loss of muscle mass, osteoporosis being the loss of bone mineral density. Uh, these are two of the most important issues that people face as they age. They're two of the best markers for aging. And they have to do with loss of calcium from the body. It's stored very heavily in muscles and in bone. However, uh, really, our aging is not so much a function of loss of calcium as it is a loss of calcium homeostasis or where the calcium is supposed to be. Because on the other side of this equation, you have diseases of aging where calcium is being deposited in places where it's not supposed to be. Places like your coronary arteries, your aorta, your heart valves, your aortic valve, your mitral valve. Uh, these are places where you don't want calcium to be in excess. And when it calcifies these areas, you can end up with really what we would describe as end-stage critical um, and deadly complications of disease. Uh, there are other issues with soft tissue calcification. You can get calcium depositing in the kidneys. You can get calcium depositing in the gallbladder. Calcium in these areas is bad, you know, just to not put too fine of a point on it. And so when people think about calcium, many of them fall into the very dangerous thinking of more is better and I need to boost my calcium. People will take vitamin D to boost their calcium. They'll take calcium supplements to boost their calcium. They'll do things like eat certain foods or take certain supplements to boost their calcium. But if there's anything I want you all to understand about calcium, it's that more is not always better. You really want to do better with what you already have, which means having the right nutritional milieu to get the calcium into the tissues where it needs to be so that it doesn't create problems so that you're not losing it from tissues where you tend to lose it, the bones and the muscles, and you're not depositing it in tissues where it isn't supposed to be in excess, the heart, coronary arteries, aorta, valves, brain, etc. Okay, so without further ado, let's jump into today's Monday Masterclass. As always, this is a Monday Masterclass. Uh, this is a free presentation for everyone on my Substack. It goes out in the newsletter after this if you want to sign up for that so you get the email alert for these videos. That is in the link tree below. And there's a premium uh, Q&A uh, for premium subscribers uh, after my masterclass every uh, Monday. That's usually at about 4 o'clock. Sometimes it's a little earlier. Sometimes it's a little later. I'm going to try and make these 30 minutes from now on, but don't count on it because I know how to talk and I have a lot to share with you. So um, anyway. Sign up for the premium. You will get a lot out of it, and you will really enjoy the Q&As after these calls. Um, also, uh, we've got a minerals webinar coming up at the end of the month. We've got our minerals, and then that's in the top link in my link tree. Um, and we've got our HTMA course enrolling right now. That's in Dr. Stillman's special offers on my link tree. You can sign up for the waiting list, and you'll be the first to know when enrollment is open. Okay, so... Osteoporosis and calcification of the aorta, very, very important topics. And this is really where this whole 
uh, topic sort of starts. Osteoporosis being a loss of bone mineral density, calcification of the aorta being bad, bad um, distribution of calcium within the aorta itself, leading to degeneration and going along with degeneration of the uh, vascular system all over the body, right? Here's the key thing for you to understand. The prevalence, and this is from the paper, the prevalence of aortic calcification rose with aging, as did the prevalence of vertebral fractures while bone mass fell. Translation, you are more likely to get vascular calcification and loss of bone mineral density with increased rate, rate of fractures as you age. This is the aging process in action, okay? After age adjustment, the only association remaining was a negative one between calcified aortic plaques and bone mineral density and the, of the lumbar spine. Translation, the more calcified your arteries are, statistically speaking, the less dense your bones are, okay? This is a really big clue that the problem is not necessarily calcium supply. The problem is calcium deposition and calcium regulation. So boosting things is a recipe for mediocre results at best. And I often see this backfiring on people in a variety of different ways. Okay. Oxidative stress in vascular calcifications, our second paper. So from the, from the abstract vascular calcification, which is closely associated with a significant mortality in cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, and or diabetes mellitus is characterized by abnormal deposits of hydroxyapatite minerals in the arterial wall. Translation, when the vessels, blood vessels of the body calcify, this is really bad and you get more cardiovascular disease. It goes along with chronic kidney disease as well and glucose intolerance, which is uniformly associated with accelerated aging. And what's happening here is an abnormal deposit of minerals within the wall of the artery that we do not want. What is the cause of this? Also from the abstract, excess ROS, that's reactive oxygen species, otherwise known as free radicals, induced oxidative stress has emerged as a critical mediator promoting vascular calcification through several mechanisms, including phosphate balance, differentiation of vascular smooth muscle cells, inflammation, DNA damage, and extracellular matrix remodeling. Translation. Reactive oxygen species and free radicals that are being produced within your body are what's truly fueling vascular calcification through a wide range of mechanisms, the details of which you truly don't need to understand if you're going to avoid the outcome that you obviously want to avoid. I would, I think it's safe to say, I don't think I'd be running afoul of any of my colleagues or experts in the space to say that vascular calcification is arguably at the heart of aging. If you want to stay healthy, if you want to stay well, if you want to stay young, this is a very important topic for you to pay attention to and understand not just the nitty gritty tactics, you know, where the pawns move on the chessboard, but the overall strategy, because it's one of the places where I see people making colossal mistakes, wasting their time, wasting their money and potentially getting worse outcomes than if they did nothing at all. Okay. So this is a very interesting paper from one of my favorite authors, Jerome Sullivan. Jerome Sullivan, you may know from my other uh, papers or from my book, Dying to be Free, where I write more about this. Pick this up on Amazon. It's well worth your while. I write uh, your while. I wrote a lot about this topic, specifically iron, uh, in chapter two, I believe it is, of this book. Uh, so I encourage you to pick this up to learn more. So Jerome Sullivan proposed the iron uh, stored iron hypothesis of heart disease. What does this hypothesis state? He said basically that the more iron you accumulate, 
the more likely you are to develop heart disease. This is not really, to be honest with you, that controversial. Uh, there's many people out there who don't talk about this hypothesis, but I don't think there can be any debate that the literature is clear. The more stored iron you have, the higher your risk for heart disease. What that means clinically is a matter of debate. Should we give people diferoxamine or other iron chelators? Should we limit their iron intake? Should they donate blood? This is stuff I cover with patients in consultation. You can get to the consultation application in the link tree below. I do tailor that to people. But you know, for the, this morning, just for an example, I actually recommended that two people consider hemochromatosis uh, gene mutation testing to see if they're heterozygous or homozygous. That's your iron overload gene. And I recommended that both of them go donate blood to see if it will help them control their blood pressure and improve some of their metabolic markers. So that's two patients in one day. I do this a lot. So what is this iron hypothesis and what does it have to do with calcium? Okay. So as you probably realize, the mainstream narrative around heart disease is that it's driven by cholesterol. Uh, many of us think this is a deeply flawed or even outright pseudoscientific hypothesis for which we get banned, vilified, hated on, whatever. We don't really care. We just don't see lowering cholesterol actually improving our patients' lives or outcomes. So we just don't bother doing it when we can do all these other things with their diet and their lifestyle that we think are way more impactful. Uh, and I can tell you as somebody who spends a lot more time with his patients than most doctors, once you get into the details of this, even if a, if a dyslipidemia is part of the problem, it is almost always a very small part of the problem compared to other mistakes that patients are making. Okay. So basically I'm telling you all this because I want you to understand you may never have heard of the iron theory of heart disease, but that doesn't make it any less important for you. And this is from this paper by Dr. Sullivan. And this is the part that I want to really focus on because I think it sums up the, the problem pretty well. Um, and this is talking, by the way, about um, the opportunity we have to deplete iron. Okay, so all of you are familiar with iron as a mineral. What most of you don't realize is that the normal amount of iron in the human body is extremely variable. People contain, generally speaking, between three and five grams of iron. Now, some of that iron is being utilized in mitochondria, in red blood cells, various other organelles and systems of the body, but much of that iron is just stored in the liver. Now, the problem with storing iron in the, in the liver is that it's highly reactive, and as it accumulates, it's going to create more and more and more reactive oxygen species. Why am I bringing this up? Because pound for pound, there's more iron in the body than almost any other trace element, and it is responsible for the generation of more free radicals or reactive oxygen species than virtually any other thing in the human body, full stop. You can go ahead and check the literature on that. I'm quite confident of that statement. So if we have excess stored iron, we should expect to see more cardiovascular disease, more vascular calcification, more and more and more medical problems. And indeed, if you go back and look at the literature, that is exactly what you see. And that is why when you look at the literature on iron depletion, what does that mean? It means bloodletting, believe it or not. Yes, bloodletting, it is still a thing. Read my book, learn more. Um, but bloodletting can actually have clinical therapeutic value. It will lower blood pressures. It's been shown in certain trials to reduce your risk of, of heart attack, et cetera. Before I continue, I want to say for the record, consult a physician or qualified healthcare provider before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, including incorporating blood donation into your, you know, lifestyle or, or routine. Um, but it is of great clinical value I've found in my practice. And here's what Dr. Sullivan has to say in his paper on this. And this is why I think it's so important. 
While iron depletion induced under medical supervision is inherently benign, we have no such assurances on the safety of stored iron. Translation, it is totally safe to live a very low iron state. However, we have no idea how safe it is to have any amount of stored iron in the body. Iron from ferritin can promote tissue injury. We know this. This point is not controversial. In addition, animal experience, experiments have shown that removal of stored iron by iron depletion protects against oxy, oxygen radical-induced injury in vivo. The studies on the antioxidant effects of iron depletion in vivo complement the larger body of data on the protective effects of the iron chelator deferoxamine. Extensive experimental results with animal hearts and with human donor hearts suggest that deferoxamine can confer strong protection against ischemic injury in subjects with normal iron status. Translation, iron creates a lot of problems. It can create a lot of free radical or, or reactive oxygen species induced damage. It stands to reason then that this process is part of what we see creating vascular calcification. It would then be reasonable to assume that by depleting people of iron, we may be able to prevent vascular calcification. I'm not supposed to say certain things about that on here based on the regulatory bodies and how they police our speech here in the United States. Uh, but suffice it to say that I recommend blood donation to my patients regularly because I believe it's going to protect many of them uh, from heart disease based on their labs and their clinical status. And he closes this section by saying, given the well-established promotion of oxygen radical injury by iron derived from ferritin, as well as the potential for delayed diagnosis of, of uh, gastrointestinal tumors, but I believe this extends to um, to cancers of all kinds more generally, I believe stored iron poses a much greater net risk than does medically supervised iron depletion. There's also important evidence that excess iron may increase the risk of cancer, infectious diseases, and other serious disorders. The safest level of stored iron may be no stored iron at all. Okay. So be aware of this. And this is one of the big take-homes from this talk. The other minerals in your body will determine how the other minerals in your body are going to be used, particularly calcium. So if you have a ton of excess stored iron, adding calcium into the body may be adding fuel to the fire because the reactive oxygen species and free radicals being produced by the iron as a simple matter of it existing in your body in the presence of oxygen, it may be way worse for you than not getting enough calcium. Now, obviously you want to balance all these minerals, which is part of why I take care of patients. I help them balance the minerals in their diet while also looking at their labs so that we know what they have in their bodies so that we can help them optimize their diet and their lifestyle and potentially incorporate things like blood donation to have an optimal mineral profile and nutritional status. Okay. Beyond iron, which is, as I said before, one of the main drivers of reactive oxygen species production and therefore cardiovascular morbidity and mortality in my humble opinion and those of many other doctors like Jerome Sullivan, other things that really matter are things like potassium. So it's this paper focuses or dietary potassium regulates vascular calcification and arterial stiffness. So vascular calcification is a risk factor that predicts adverse cardiovascular complications of several diseases, including atherosclerosis. Reduced dietary potassium intake has been linked to cardiovascular diseases such as hypertension and incidental stroke, although the underlying molecular mechanisms remain largely unknown. What does that mean? It means eating a low potassium diet is a disaster. I have seen this over and over and over and over again. 
And my number one recommendation to my patients who I find eating less than three grams of potassium a day is add more root vegetables, potatoes, sweet potatoes, turnips, carrots, parsnips, rutabagas, whatever. They're all rich in potassium. You can get some from green leafy vegetables, but to be frank, to get large loads, you have to eat like a rabbit for whatever reason. There's a ton of potassium in goat milk. It's another one of my favorites for potassium. There's a ton of potassium in blackstrap molasses, which is another reason why I like it. There's a lot of potassium in bananas, which is yet another reason why I like them. But all of that has to be tailored to you because believe me, there's a lot of caveats there that I don't have time to get into here. Mechanistically, again, from the paper, reduction in the potassium concentration to the lower limit of the physiological range increased intracellular calcium, which activated a CAMP response element binding protein signal that subsequently enhanced autophagy and promoted vascular smooth muscle cell calcification. Translation, when you drop potassium levels, you can trigger some of the changes that result in this calcification, which is bad for your arteries, right? Again, it's not about how much calcium is coming in. It's about how it's being used and how it's being regulated by these other minerals, notably potassium. In closing, these studies established a potentially novel causative role of dietary potassium intake in regulating atherosclerotic vascular calcification and stiffness and uncovered mechanisms that offer opportunities to develop therapeutic strategies to control vascular disease. Wow, what a long-winded way of saying dietary potassium is really important. If you don't get enough of it, it's a good chance that it's going to be that low intake is going to be triggering vascular calcification and stiffness in your arteries, which is then of course, uh, going hand in hand with more risk of cardiovascular disease in general, heart attacks, strokes, etc. Okay. Another critical mineral for this issue is magnesium. So the title of this uh, brief review, magnesium counteracts vascular calcification. Is this passive interference or active modulation? Great question. Very academic. Here's the 50,000 foot view from the abstract. Over the last decade, an increasing number of studies report a close relationship between serum magnesium concentration and cardiovascular disease risk in the general population. In end-stage renal disease, an association was found between serum magnesium and survival. Hypomagnesemia was identified as a strong predictor for cardiovascular disease in these patients. Why? Or let's go over that. Translation. Okay. The lower your serum magnesium, the higher your risk of cardiovascular disease. Guess what? Almost all the foods that are rich in potassium are also rich in magnesium. You might even consider serum magnesium to be a reasonable surrogate marker for serum potassium. There's a lot of caveats to that, a lot of considerations I don't have time to get into today, but the bottom line here is simple. Magnesium plays a critical role in your risk for heart disease, and that's one of the reasons why almost invariably I am putting people on high magnesium diets because I want their serum magnesium to be at the upper limit of normal. There is no reason to let someone drift down into, you know, what I would call the lower end, certainly below the 50th percentile in a population, i.e. the United States, that is grossly under-consuming magnesium relative to optimal intakes, not to mention they're living these high stress, very toxic lives where increased uh, magnesium uh, is needed in order to just keep up with demand from various things that are causing it to be depleted. So low magnesium levels go hand in hand with heart disease and stroke. Why is this? Two leading hypotheses from the paper. First, magnesium may bind phosphate and delay calcium phosphate crystal growth in the circulation, thereby passively interfering with calcium phosphate deposition in the vessel wall. 
Hypothesis number two, magnesium may regulate vascular smooth muscle cell transdifferentiation towards an osteogenic phenotype by active cellular modulation of factors associated with calcification. Wow. Translation of the first part. So magnesium may get in the way of phosphate binding to calcium and then depositing in the vessel wall. Translation of the second hypothesis, magnesium may prevent the smooth muscle cells in the vessel wall from turning into uh, cells Osteo, um, uh, osteo or osteogenic type cells that would then create calcification. Okay. That makes stem cells really important in this because what you're saying here is basically that the magnesium is modulating these smooth muscle stem cells to prevent them from going the wrong direction to create a vascular problem. Okay. More on this in a minute. I know a lot of you coming into this video come in immediately asking what about vitamin D because everyone, I feel like in the health and wellness space, like you, you five minutes in the health and wellness space, and you've probably heard about vitamin D and you've probably heard about how it affects calcium. For those of you who don't know, vitamin D increases calcium intake from the gut. It also controls vitamin D homeostasis within the body, i.e. where the vitamin or the calcium, I should say, gets deposited and why. Now, vitamin D does a whole lot else. So don't get me wrong, vitamin D is not just about where the calcium is going. It's about immunity and, you know, I just a whole laundry list of other things that I can't get into today. But when it comes to vitamin D and calcification, one of the big questions in the literature has been, if we give people too much vitamin D, are we going to calcify them too much? We know that if they have too little vitamin D, their bones get soft and weak and they end up with osteoporosis but you don't necessarily want to just give everyone 10,000 or 20,000 IU of vitamin D daily and say, okay, we figured that out onto the next problem. Because if you're overdosing some of these people, there's a strong argument, certainly, um, at least theoretically that you will push some of these people into worse vascular calcification. This is part of why I don't uniformly recommend 10,000 IU of vitamin D to people because you will normalize virtually anyone's vitamin D level with 10,000 IU. I mean, they could have to have such horrifically poor compliance, i.e. they don't take it, um, or they have to have horrifically bad digestion for them to not normalize their vitamin D when they're taking in that much. But I digress. Okay. And here's the bottom line from the abstract. Okay. Deregulation of vitamin D metabolism, dietary calcium intake, and renal mineral handling are associated with imbalances in systemic calcium and phosphate levels and endothelial cell dysfunction, which can modulate both bone and soft tissue calcification. Translation. Deregulation. In other words, systems that are supposed to work together getting dysregulated or deregulated, i.e. unhooked from one another. Okay that deregulation is associated with imbalances in the minerals within the system, within the body itself as a whole. And then endothelial cell dysfunction, that's dysfunction of the cells that line the uh, arteries and veins of the body, okay? And then this in turn affects bone and soft tissue calcification. So it's very important to make sure that all the different things that affect these pathways is being properly modulated. One of the ways that you do that is making sure that your macronutrients and macro minerals are in appropriate ranges, because guess what? I guarantee if you go back to the literature, you're going to see that sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, as well as other trace elements, which are not macro minerals, but are trace minerals are going to modulate 
these processes. And so if you have crazy all over the place deficiencies or excesses of these things, which is very common in our modern world where there's lots of minerals being used as additives or being removed from foods because of the risk of spoiling, you can create a lot of dysfunction here. And that's why whole natural food is, I mean, no one debates this, like whole natural single ingredient food from the grocery store is the healthiest way to eat period, full stop, end of story. Okay. That's why virtually every study you look at about processed food, just the processing of the food, almost regardless of what kind of processing has been done to it, somehow increases uh, your risk of death when you consume it. So avoiding or at least moderating uh, uh, processed food intake is really key. And I'm not saying that all processed food is de facto bad. It can be benign. But in the minute you start to change food from the way it occurs in nature, you're beginning to play with fire and you can create these problems that we then see coming out in clinical practice that cause people or are the risk factors for people to get strokes and heart attacks and cancers and lots of, of problems as they age. So anyway, that's the thing that really matters for vitamin D. And there's one word in this, in this paper that I'm really glad they included as the, as the keyword, which is biphasic. And I highlighted it. Why? Because I think that if you are going to understand anything about vitamin D from this video, it's that it's one of the nutrients that has a very clear biphasic dose response. So by biphasic, we mean that it has two different phases to its response. If you have low levels, it's bad. If you have high levels, it's bad. That's biphasic, essentially. Some people will talk about the U-shaped curve or the J-shaped curve. I don't care particularly about what letter the curve looks like. The key idea here is that too much, not good, too little, also not good. This Goldilocks principle of just in the middle, just fine. Okay. Um, let's look up where they use this word because it's really interesting how they use it. So current evidence from experimental studies suggests a biphasic response to vitamin D activity with either excess or deficient levels of vitamin D potentially leading to deleterious calcification outcomes. It's pretty much what I've been saying this whole paper. All right. Um, I think that's the rest of this. Um, they don't give any dosing regulate or, or advice or guidelines in this paper, which I thought was, um, well, I thought it was interesting. Um, and I think that's appropriate that they don't give any dosing recommendations because to be completely honest with you, you know, if you're listening to this for all, I know you're in 95 pound competitive gymnast, who's only four, nine, and it would be silly of me to give you the same dose that I would give a linebacker who's 270 pounds and six, four, you know, the 200, that, that linebacker can, you know, pick that 95 pound gymnast up with like his pinky finger and, uh, not break a sweat doing it. So for me to give you guys the same dose is crazy. And a lot of this depends on things like, does your gallbladder work? How much time are you spending out in the sun? Is there UV light in your environment? How much skin do you have exposed? What's your skin type? Fitzpatrick skin type, all that kind of stuff. So I won't get into that here. I've made a lot of other content on vitamin D if you want to learn more about that. So, um, the role of vitamin K in soft tissue calcification. This is the last uh, major um, uh, nutrient that I'm going to cover today in this, this topic on uh, calcium and calcification because the reality is that all the minerals play a role in calcification. I probably could have done a 30-minute presentation on how manganese can contribute to calcification, but we just don't have all the time in the world, so I'm not going to you know trot out an endless number of papers. My goal with these videos is more to give you kind of the 50,000 foot view, not the nitty gritty tactics of how it all happens. That's really my job to keep track of as a clinician, not your job to keep track of as a consumer, because believe me, it's a full-time job. And I know all of you are busy with, you know, having a life and I respect that. So vitamin K though, really important for soft tissue calcification and has been in the, I would say it hasn't been well appreciated until the last couple of decades, what role this plays. 
So vitamin K is a vitamin you may never have heard of. There's two forms. There's vitamin K1 and there's vitamin K2. Vitamin K1 is found in green leafy vegetables. It's very good for you. Uh, if you're on warfarin, be very careful with this. I'm not telling you to go out and eat more vitamin K because that can screw up your warfarin dosing. You've got to work with your clinician on that. But one of the reasons why warfarin is actually used as, uh, if you didn't know this, rat poison is that it causes so much inhibition of vitamin K dependent um, uh, coagulation that it will cause animals to bleed out catastrophically. In fact, that's how it was discovered. Researchers in, I think it was the Northern Midwest, maybe Wisconsin found that their herds of, of cattle were dying of these massive exsanguinations. In other words, they bled to death spontaneously. And the, um, the females, the cows had much greater rates of abortions and much more difficulty getting pregnant. And what they found is that the cows were um, eating this type of grass that has very high levels of these coumarins in it. And the coumarins are what we make warfarin from. And so as soon as they got the cattle off of that, everything got better, but they turned the, the compound from these grasses into rat poison. And then they figured out that it would thin the blood if you used it in a low enough dose. So for people who are on warfarin, you may not realize this, but you're actually on rat poison and you need to be really careful with the dose. Um, uh, so why is that important? Why is that relevant? The more coumarin or, or warfarin or coumadin these people are on, the, um, the more it's going to deplete their vitamin K. This is why some of us are wary of using or are, are, are wondering if long-term we're going to see less morbidity and mortality on other blood thinners. This is a really nitty-gritty internal medicine cardiology topic for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. So I'll try not to bore you, but bottom line, um, this is important. It's in the blind spot of most clinicians or they're not talking about it with their patients because they don't have enough time. I actually do talk about this with my patients because I have a lot of time with them. And um, the role of vitamin K, as I was saying, in soft tissue calcification is what people miss when they're thinking about inhibiting it in order to thin the blood. So with vitamin K and soft tissue calcification, I'm, I'm just going to read from the paper now because they say it very well. Uh, abstract, there are 17 vitamin K dependent proteins that have been identified to date of which several are, are involved in regulating soft tissue calcification, osteocalcin matrix, uh, glycoprotein a, and possibly glycoprotein rich protein are all inhibitors of soft tissue calcification and need vitamin K dependent carboxylation for activity. Translation vitamin K likely prevents soft tissue calcification. I hope the FDA doesn't throw me in jail for saying that, but that's basically what the literature is telling us. Uh, further on in the abstract, this study, the only one that they've found on um, uh, clinical intervention on this, showed that maintenance of vascular activity during a three-year supplementation period was contrasted with a parallel 12% loss of elasticity in the placebo group. What does that mean? It means that the more vitamin K uh, consumed in this study that lasted for three years, the lower the rate of, um, elasticity loss in, in the arteries. Uh, in other words, but we have every reason to believe that vitamin K will reduce calcification of soft tissues. Now let's be really clear. We're talking about mostly vitamin K2, which isn't found in green leafy vegetables that I mentioned earlier. It's found in things like hard cheeses, organ meats, and animal products, which is why I like to rotate in a healthy quantity of these five to eight ounces of lean meats at most meals for most of my patients. I like to see hard cheeses being used as a garnish, things like Parmesan, Pecorino Romano, all these hard cheeses, generally speaking anyway, have a lot of 
uh, vitamin K in them that will help people uh, with this. Many people ask me, should I take vitamin D with K2? And my answer is usually it can't hurt. And why not? Because unless you're taking Coumadin and Warfarin, as I mentioned before, vitamin K is really only going to do you good. Now, do you need to spend extra money on vitamin K? I, I haven't looked at a lot of the longevity data for this, but I mean, if it came down to my artery walls as I aged and I was taking vitamin D, I would be sure to take vitamin D with K2 personally. And that's what I generally recommend to, um, to patients. So, okay. Now, last topic I want to address on the topic of calcification is that it's not just about all these things I've already talked about. And yeah, I could go on and on and on about more stuff in this presentation, but there's one more thing I want to address, which is the role of mesenchymal stem cells. Why do I think mesenchymal stem cells are so important? Because the more we learn about these mesenchymal stem cells, the more we find that they have everything to do with aging, degeneration, decay, health, wellness, vitality, et cetera. I mean, in, in very real terms, I think it's appropriate to say that the health of your stem cells is the health of your body. And as you get older and sicker, more and more stem cell activity tends to drop off. And that means anything we can do in order to wake up those stem cells and get them to work tends to have great clinical value. Now, not all of that has been elucidated, which is why I'm not going to get up here on this video and say things like improving your stem cell function treats all diseases. But the more I study stem cells, the more I hear about them from colleagues, friends, experts, the more it seems like that's the trend. So why would I not tell you that? Um, unless it's just because I'm afraid that the, you know, powers that be will get mad at me for saying things I'm not supposed to say on, um, social media in our increasingly, um, you know, Orwellian society. So, um, in this paper, the thing I want you guys to just know, and this is from the abstract is simple mesenchymal stem cells, um, with a multi-directional differentiation ability and great potential for clinical application play a duplex role in the vascular calcification process. Translation. Mesenchymal stem cells are very important in the process of vascular calcification, which is, you know, basically inherent in that is that your stem cells are partly responsible for how the calcium in your body is being used, right? Remember that first paper I talked about aging, bone mineral density loss and increasing fracture risk and aortic calcification all went together. That was the aging process kind of in a microcosm. Mesenchymal stem cells facilitate vascular calcification mainly through osteogenic transformation and apoptosis. Meanwhile, several studies have reported the protective role of mesenchymal stem cells. Anti-inflammatory blockade of BMP2 signaling, downregulation of the WNT signal and anti-apoptosis through paracrine signals or signaling are possible mechanisms. This review displays the evidence both on the facilitating role and on the protective role of mesenchymal stem cells, and then discusses the key factors determining uh, this paradoxical relationship or divergence, as they like to call it. So translation, okay? Stem cells are really important and are increasingly important. This is a recent paper. This is only 2019, right? That's only four years old. That's very new in the history of science. Um, mesenchymal stem cells play a critical role in this process of vascular calcification, which is part of why I really like things that help our stem cells. Things like photobiomodulation. This is why I have things like a EMR tech firestorm behind me. If you want more information on that, go to my Substack. look up my article on uh, red and infrared light therapy, where I cover that. It's why I like my sauna space sauna which has a lot of red and infrared light. We know lots and lots and more and more every day about how red and infrared light activate stem cells. My patients who come to me saying, I'm going to go get stem cells done. I'm like, listen, I hope you have a post stem cell 
um, recovery routine or protocol that incorporates the use of this light. Because if you're going to spend a lot of money on stem cells, like five, 10, 20, 50 grand on stem cells, you would be crazy not to pick up a therapeutic light, whether it's a sauna space or an EMR tech firestorm or firewave or whatever that can actually activate these things as we've seen over and over again, uh, as proven in the literature, more on that later. Okay. But there's one other product that's actually really convenient and a lot cheaper than stem cells, um, that has an association with this. And that is the LifeWave patches, which I write a, a lot about. You can view more of my, um, videos on this on YouTube. You can also go to my link tree and there's a link in there to my most recent article on LifeWave patches. Why am I a big fan of the LifeWave patches? And what do I think they have to do with vascular calcification with calcium, um, and with stem cells? Okay. So the LifeWave patches, the X39 patches, which I generally recommend people start with three months of, um, upregulate GHKCU in the human body. They've been shown to do that in studies. I don't have the study pulled up, but I've covered it in other videos and I don't really feel like belaboring the point. Suffice it to say, we have data showing that it does this. Okay. Why is that such a big deal? So this is from the abstract of this, of this paper, the human tripeptide GHKCU in the prevention of oxidative stress and degenerative conditions of aging implications for cognitive health. So the first line of the abstract, oxidative stress, disrupted copper homeostasis and neuroinflammation due to overproduction of pro-inflammatory cytokines are considered leading causative factors in development of age associated neurodegenerative conditions. Now I just switched from talking about cardiovascular disease, calcification and, um, bone mineral density and calcium and things like that to neurodegenerative conditions. Why is this all sort of the same thing? Well, it's all aging. And if you were to go through everything I just said about all these other systems and talk about them with regards to the brain, you'd find that almost all the same rules and all the same principles apply. I would, you know, if you look at the aging brain, it has calcification inside of it. That's actually a real significant reason why people are more risk at risk of stroke as they get older. These calcifications in the vessel walls of the aging brain, they will have little, these little tears or micro tears. And if there's enough pressure going through that artery, it will force its way out of the vessel and you'll get what we call a hemorrhagic stroke. And that's part of why controlling blood pressure as we age is so important. That's a whole nother topic that I would love to talk about, but we don't have time today. Everything I talked about as far as controlling or calcium homeostasis today is directly relevant to blood pressure regulation, but we just don't have time to get into that. Um, so what's the translation of this first line here? Okay. Oxidative stress, i.e. reactive oxygen species, free radicals, synonymous with iron overload, heavy metals will produce oxidative stress. It's like the main process of aging. If you hadn't heard disrupted copper homeostasis. So one of the things about copper that I talk about all the time is that, is that just like with calcium, it's not about how much copper you have. It's about how well it's being harnessed. Copper is an incredible mineral. It's got lots of therapeutic value, but what people don't realize is that free copper is basically a loaded gun or maybe a better analogy would be a loose cannon. You need to have it bound to peptides. So what is GHKCU? GHKCU is GHK copper peptide. The CU and GHKCU stands for copper. So this copper peptide um, has all these different uh, beneficial effects. And these beneficial effects are essentially the opposite of what you see when the copper gets out of control and you lose this copper homeostasis. And that disrupted copper homeostasis and oxidative stress go along with neuroinflammation, the overproduction of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and then age-associated neurodegenerative conditions. 
which means that just as much as iron over here is important for all of this and all the other minerals I talked about, like magnesium and potassium, and also the things that control them from the vitamin world, like vitamin D and vitamin K, they're also important, but copper is also important. And here's another reason why copper is important. Copper, as just one example, there's probably lots of trace element um, uh, um, corollaries here with other trace elements, I mean. But copper and GHK, and this is from the abstract, GHK possesses a plethora of other regenerative and protective actions, including antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and wound healing properties. Translation, GHK copper peptide has a lot of potential for helping us to heal and regenerate after illness, which is why it's been one of the hottest topics in the anti-aging and regenerative literature. It's one of the top peptides you're gonna see people promoting out there. And the reality is that I don't really I mean, I, I can't remember when I last recommended that someone inject copper peptide or yeah, copper peptide. Why? Because I have the LifeWave patches that are shown when you just put them on your skin to upregulate the copper peptide in your body, which gives you all these benefits. Um, why is this important? Because it has been demonstrated that GHKCU in these concentrations, 0.1 to 10 micromoles, increases expression of integrants and P63. Since these molecules are considered proliferative markers of epidermal stem cells, the authors concluded that GHKCU helps to maintain an active proliferative state of epidermal stem cells. Now that's not a ton of data. It's not a mountain of data like I'd like it to be, but you know, we don't have an infinite amount of time and there's not a lot of research going on in this space, at least not compared to other things. And for my money and my time, this means that optimizing GHKCU levels in the body is one of the first things I want to do when it comes to health and disease, which is part of why as I worked more and more with these LifeWave patches and I got better and better results, I eventually decided that I just wanted to build the cost of the patches into working with me when people see me in person. So we now, uh, we basically comp everyone in our comprehensive, uh, well, and this is like brand new. I just decided to do this uh, this week, so today. Um, we comp people for the X39 and a couple of other patches if we think we if we think they need them or will significantly benefit from them because the results we see with the patches are so profound. Again, if you want more information, you want to try them for yourselves, the link is in my um, link tree. This is also a network marketing product. Full disclosure, not, you know, I don't want you to find that out later and be disappointed I didn't tell you up front. Uh, but it's a network marketing product because they're basically disintermediating. Um, all the big players in the advertising world who really, to be honest with you, don't play nice with people in the anti-aging regenerative medicine space. And you can go out there and see a lot of testimonials on this, and you'll be shocked by some of the testimonials that you'll see. If you want more information on that, you can join my LifeWave team. We have behind the scenes conversations where we actually talk about the results people are seeing. You know, we recently, I mean, I don't really want to talk about the results here because I'm a little bit wary of getting smacked by the censorship. Um, I don't know what to call them people, uh, but I'm very encouraged by what I see with these patches. And that's again, why I go ahead and just sink a bunch of our money into them so we can just provide them for our patients upfront without having to worry about whether or not they're going to buy them later. So I think that's enough for today. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, again, the bottom line here is that not that many of you need more calcium. I'm not going to say most of you, because frankly, most of you probably don't get enough calcium. But the reality is this idea of, I've, oh, I don't get enough calcium. I need to get more of it. It's very flawed. When I counsel someone on how much calcium to get, whether or not to take a calcium supplement, 
I'm looking at all their minerals. I'm looking at a hair tissue mineral analysis. I'm looking at a blood mineral panel. I'm looking at toxic levels of heavy metals in their hair or in their blood. I'm looking at their clinical picture, their clinical status, their blood pressure, their hemoglobin A1C, their fasting glucose, all these metrics that I then put together to figure out exactly what they need so that it's not guesswork. It's not, oh, I'm going to listen to another 20 podcasts on this and then wonder how to put it all together. You let me take that off your plate. I tell you exactly what to do. I hold you accountable. My team, you know, monitors your case. That's how we get people results. That's how we help people. Uh, we don't do lab testing in our coaching programs, but the coaching programs, we basically help people with the same thing. Where are you? Where do you want to go? What should you do to get there? Diet, lifestyle, counseling, all that kind of stuff. So as always, thank you for watching. Don't forget there is a premium um, Q&A for my Substack subscribers who are on the paid version. Uh, right after this, the Zoom invitation for that comes out with the post on Substack. I look forward to seeing my premium subscribers in a minute. As always, thanks for watching. Take care. Have a great day. And don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter at stillmanwellness.com. Why? Because you get updates on when these come out every week. And you also get exclusive access to our Thursday morning webinars where Jim and I are going over critical topics, uncensored, uh, very uh, inf critical information. And it's only for our, our newsletter subscribers. And all these webinars get turned into courses behind the scenes that if you're not catching them live as a member of our email list, you are going to be paying for them in courses later on if you want to access the content. So I really strongly encourage you to do that. All right, that's enough. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. And don't forget to get outside.